Please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 14. And I would direct your attention to verse 30. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. The book of Proverbs is rightly called the book of wisdom. And as such, the Lord provides us in this book two things that are very frequently overlooked. First of all, in the book of wisdom, the Lord provides us with the application of his moral law, thus furnishing us with wisdom. We learn how to take the moral law and how to apply it, particularly to specific circumstances. Secondly, this book of wisdom also sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the wisdom of God, in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so it provides for us a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it is not isolated moral principles. That's the approach that many take. It's not some detached fabric of an ancient uh, ethical code or list of do's and don'ts. No, it is part of the Christian scriptures. And so as you're reading through the Proverbs, you can, you can pause really at any one of the discrete or particular Proverbs, and you can ask yourself those two questions. You can ask yourself, first of all, what commandment is being expounded in this particular proverb? Which of the Ten Commandments? And then secondly, what is being revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ in this particular uh, proverb? And so as you come to Proverbs 14, verse 30, a sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. It's pretty evident that at least on the surface, the, the main commandment that's being expounded is the eighth. The eighth commandment is what is being addressed. And as Paul makes the connection in Colossians, for example, also the first commandment, because covetousness is idolatry, as he tells us. So envy or covetousness. So it brings in the first commandment as well. And then we can ask ourselves, well, what, what is being shown to us of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we find in him the one preeminently who has a sound heart, and who is utterly free of envy. Why? Because he was perfectly satisfied with all that, the father, that he had received from the Father. He was perfectly satisfied with all of the allotment and calling and circumstances that had been given to him by the Father. And he who is life also gave abundantly out of his abundance to poor needy sinners. And so we see something of the Lord Jesus Christ in that, even just to mention it in a cursory way. And so this evening we come uh, to this particular proverb, and we're going to note three things. The, the theme is sound and satisfied heart. The first of all, we begin with a sound heart. So the passage says, a sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Uh, Hebrew poetry has a number of characteristics. You see it here in the, the book of Proverbs. It often supplies us 
as we see in Proverbs, with a couplet. Right? You have in this verse two parts. And sometimes it, the first part is stated, and then the second part's just a, a restatement of the same thing in different words. Other times it's sort of flipped in its order. In this case, we have an example of a contrast, an antithesis. It's stated one way, and then the opposite of it is provided in the second part. But you should always view them as two halves of one whole with one meaning. In other words, uh, each part informs our understanding of the meaning of the whole. So here you think of the contrast. On one side, you have uh, a sound heart. And on the other side, you have envy. And then the other part of contrast is on, on the first side, you have the life of the flesh, which in this case, flesh is body. That's what it means, body. So the life of the body. And the contrast on the other side is rottenness of the bones. And so you can see how these two things are set in contrast, but they're informing each other. To have a sound heart is the opposite of being envious. To be envious is to have a sick soul, if you will. And to have a sound heart is to have a contented heart, a satisfied heart, not an envious heart, right? Just as, just as the life of the body is the opposite of the rottenness of, of the bones. And so in this, we're reminded, as we so often are, that sin kills and grace heals. Sin kills and grace heals. This is the nature of sin. The nature of sin is to kill and the nature of grace is, is to heal. And it's, it, comes, it comes to expression here in one of the most profound mysteries, and that is the connection between the soul and the body. This is a great mystery, the connection between the soul and the body, because they, they mutually influence one another, right? The body has an influence over the soul. When you're not well and sick or other things are broken, it can spill over and have influence on the soul and vice versa. The soul has a profound influence, as we see here, upon the body. But sin kills and grace heals. And this, this can be traced all the way out to the very end, right? You can trace it out to where it leads. And where does it lead? On the last day, right, the, the sinful soul and the, the fallen body are damned, right? They are reserved for eternal death. Whereas the gracious soul on the last day receives eternal life. So that's the culmination, the end. But everything leading up to it is in the same vein. Sin is always killing, killing, killing. Whereas grace is what heals and imparts life and strength and so on. So here we're told a sound heart is the life of the flesh or body. The word sound here is uh, a number of things, but it includes the idea of healthy, right? So you have a sound mind, that's a healthy mind, or a sound body, that's a healthy body. In this case, it's referring to the heart, the soul, it's the passions are under control. There's a, there's a spiritual stability. The, the heart is whole. It is, it's at rest, if you will. And this is, of course, the fruit of divine grace. It is something that comes as the fruit of the Spirit. It comes as the product of the gospel at work in a converted soul. And yet it is something that is also cultivated within a gracious soul, within a person who's regenerated, who's in a state of grace. Uh, they are to be cultivating 
a, a sound heart, and they're able to do so only by the Lord. And so if a sound heart is referring to satisfaction, a contentedness, well, then the language of Paul in, in Philippians 4.13 is very relevant to us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's in this very context that it's through Christ who strengthens and enables us to cultivate a, a sound heart. You think, okay, well, if it's, if it's cultivated, where exactly do we cultivate it? Where do we learn it? What's the context for it? And perhaps looking at that Philippians 4 passage will supply you with a biblical answer because there in Philippians 4 verse 11, Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, right? Here's something learned, something cultivated. What have you learned, Paul? I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So where is it? It's actually in all of our circumstances, the sound heart, which results in, a, in life for the body, is actually brought to pass in all of our circumstances. He says in his language, whatsoever state I'm in. Everywhere, he says, in all things, I am instructed with regards to this satisfaction, soundness, contentedness of heart. So whatever the circumstances are. So we don't wait for seasons that are particular to come that, okay, well, this is a, a season in which we learn to be content because of X, Y, or Z. No, he's saying in all of our, whatever the circumstances are, your, your outward condition is irrelevant in this respect with regards to the inward condition of your heart, soundness of your heart. He says, I learned it. I know it. I know it. I, I'm instructed in it. And so it's something, this sound heart is something that, that grows. It is something that we, by the Spirit, develop and make progress in. Something that is stretched in, our, in the work of the Spirit within our souls. Whether we're in a context of abounding or whether we're in a context of being abased. Whether we're, whether we're in a situation where we're receiving and receiving from the Lord. Or whether we're in a situation where we're lacking, going without. He says in all of these circumstances, this is where the sound heart takes shape. And it requires us, of course, to transfer, to transfer your gaze from what you want to what you have. From what you want to what you have. Now, what exactly do I mean by that? Because many of you are thinking, to yourself, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, we need to be content. So I have this much money in this house and I have this job and these circumstances. That's not what I mean. You need to transfer your gaze from what you want to what you have. What, what exactly, if you are a Christian, what do you have? Well, let me give you the answer from Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, envy, and be content with such things as ye have. Now, let's, let's hear it. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. What is it that we have? We have the Lord. It is the Lord that we have. 
We have the Lord, and as I've so often said, he is the one thing that can never, ever, ever, ever be taken away from us. We can lose absolutely everything else, our life included, but we cannot ever lose him. He's never taken away from us. And so when I say transfer your gaze from what you want to what you have, it's a call to be a lover of Christ. It's a call to be fixing your gaze and cultivating and pursuing and, and uh, longing for and laboring after a love for Christ, not a love for self, not a love for pleasures, which Paul warns Timothy about, but to be a lover of God, to be a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the fact is he is enough. He is the one who is all sufficient. He is all adequate. He is indeed enough. And of course, in having him, we have everything. If he who has not withheld his own son from us, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? As Romans 8 says. You think about what that means. As I like to say, every day out of hell is a wonderful day. To be delivered from hell is something that we have in him and from him. Something to rejoice over. In him, we have been given a kingdom. We, we have a kingdom. We have the greatest conceivable kingdom that could ever exist. We're citizens of it. We're kings in it. We, we're participants of it. It's our kingdom. It's ours. All ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have grace. Abundance of grace. Super abundance of grace. All and more grace than we could ever desire or stand in need of. We have in the Lord Jesus Christ the reward of all that is to come. So that we have treasure that is in heaven. That's not diminishable. That's not corruptible. Stealable. Right? We have a reward that far outstrips and outexcels anything known among the treasure troves of this or, or the ancient world. We have all of that, but chiefly we have him. We have the Lord and a sound heart, a sound heart, which is the life of the body, is a heart that is taken up with love and satisfaction in the full sufficiency that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who out of his fullness gives us his abundance. That is what enables the sound-hearted Christian to learn to become, un to become comfortable with what is uncomfortable. The sound heart is able to be comfortable with what is uncomfortable. For in the heart, in the heart itself, satisfaction with external circumstances, whatever they may be. And so first of all, we have a sound heart. Secondly, we have a satisfied heart. Secondly, we have a satisfied heart. And this brings out a different hue in the word that's given to us here for sound, a sound heart. It, it carries with it the idea of tranquility. And so our version of the Holy Scriptures takes the same Hebrew word and elsewhere translates it yielding, right? It is a, a yielding heart. And you, you can see immediately the contrast with envy, with, with jealousy, with covetousness, right? That's, 
That's, that's to be in a state that is agitated, to be discontent, right? It's, it's consuming and wasting the soul and the body. It drains one's energy. It decays one's body. It rots, the passage says, your very person. And so there's this contrast between this tranquility or satisfaction over against dissatisfaction or envy, wanting what others have and you don't, right? That, that envy, dissatisfaction, you want something you don't have that others do have. Now, let's not just confine our thinking uh, to the category of possessions, right? When you think of envy, most people kind of, their mind automatically runs to stuff. You want other people's stuff, other people's possessions. But it can be a lot of things. It can be their job. It could be their relationships, their health, their gifts, their happiness, their opportunities. In fact, keep going. Any and all of their circumstances. Right? This is the agitation of, of envy. We have this, this, this idiom, which has come down in English. We, we, we say that person is green with envy. They're green with envy. The reason we have that is because the Greeks associated a green complexion with jealousy, right? They, they viewed it as, as jealousy causing an overproduction of bile in the stomach, and it made the countenance sort of having a, a green tint to it. So green with envy, it means someone who's very envious, intensely envious of, of someone else. But here we're, we're, we're having set in contrast to that what's exhibited in the Lord Jesus himself, and that is to be truly satisfied. To, a contentment with God's will, with God's allotment, with God's appointment. A contentment to say, whatever apparent losses I, I am suffering, it's always an exchange. And the exchange is having Christ more of Christ, nearer, nearness to Christ, sweeter fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that satisfaction, that satisfied heart that we're talking about flows from submission, from, as I said, yielding, this language of yielding. So satisfaction flows from submission, yielding our will and embracing God's will. And doing so through the exercise of faith, Trusting his goodness, trusting his love, trusting his wisdom, having confidence in it by faith that enables us to be loosened in our hearts to yield to his will and what he has ordered for us, right? This is a satisfied or sound heart. It's the life of the body. The problem is we are so often blinded by being preoccupied with what we think we need. We're blinded by our preoccupation with what we think we need. When the fact is, nobody knows better than the Lord. God knows, he knows before we ever have a need, but he also knows best what exactly our needs are, what we truly need, and what we don't need. In fact, Jesus says as much, doesn't he? You'll remember 
in the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, in Matthew 6, where he says in verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. The Lord knows. So he knows, he knows before and best what we need. The fact is, we don't. We don't know what we need. We think we do, but we don't. Instead, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. We're to walk by faith, trusting, believing, leaning, watching, looking, yielding to the Lord. Right? We sing the most well-known psalm in English, right? Everybody knows it. I mean, even the, even the pagans know it. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want, shall not lack. And I'm not, I don't need because I have a shepherd who is caring for me. It ends, goodness and mercy shall surely follow. The word is pursue. Surely, I'm confident, goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. And so we mortify our wants by wanting what the Lord wants. It's pretty simple. We mortify our wants by wanting what the Lord wants. That means we have to believe his promises. It means we have to trust his providence. But in doing so, we can see clearly as God sees, to see as he sees, and as a consequence to say as he says, to affirm what he, what he says. So you understand the soundness of heart that brings life to, to the body. But there's a crunch. And the crunch is found in the trenches of our daily experience. Because what happens is this. We are squeezed between God's word and God's works. We have his word in the Bible, but then we have, this is what he says to us, but then we have in our experience of providence, the unfolding of his his works. And when I say there's a crunch, I mean this. We begin to fabricate arguments. So we, we look at our circumstances, you fill in the blank, whatever the Lord's pressing home upon your own conscience under his word. You look at those circumstances and arguments begin to pop up all over the place. And what you do is you, you go back to the word, which isn't wrong in itself, but you'll begin saying to yourself, well, you know, God's word says this thing is good. God's word says this thing is lawful. God's word says that he'll supply, you know, the things that I need. And this is what I think I need. You know, the Lord wants to make us happy. And the Lord's goodness is displayed in this. And, and you know, we may go with whatever the particular thing is in your mind to specific passages that talk about that thing. And we begin to multiply all of these, all of these ideas as arguments that justify our discontentment with God's work of providence. And we say, it's, I'm justified to be unhappy. I'm justified to want, 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 to be envious of the things that I don't have. One of the things that stood out to me in preparing this sermon that I don't remember seeing before, there's a couple of these things, 
But in looking at the, the parallel passage, related passage, I should say, in Philippians 4, very interesting to me that in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul's dealing with this whole matter of satisfaction and contentment of, of heart, remember the Greek word that we have for, or the English word contentment, that Greek word is sometimes translated satisfaction, even in our, our, our translation of the Bible. These two things go together. Satisfaction is part of what contentment means. But anyway, Philippians 4, verse 12, go back there. I know both how to, how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The thing that I want you to recognize here is that Paul mentions a particular thing. Being hungry. Now that's very interesting. Why? Because hunger and food is what every single one of us would think of as the very bare basics of, of life. He's saying, I've learned to be content with hunger. So we think of hunger, you, you can see this illustrates how these arguments in our head work. Because we would say, well, you know, hunger, that's a non-negotiable. That's, that's almost a right that, that we have. And it's a fundamental bodily, physical need. And it's an inescapable necessity. And the Lord says that he'll provide our daily bread. And he tells us, you know, that, that we can, that, that the Lord's designed creation. He's designed us with bodies. He's designed food. And we're supposed to eat that food and see this is in keeping with creation. And, and, and food is, has an inherent goodness to it. And it has, we have physical demands, which are legitimate. And God desires for us to eat. And it's a lawful pleasure for us to enjoy and we can multiply all of the reasons why we don't have to be content, hungry. So it's interesting that Paul actually mentions that one. Because if it applies to hunger, then it applies to everything. All the other things that you think you have a right to but don't have, it applies to those things as well. Learning to be content with the allotment God gives us, yielding to his will so that we want what he wants in any given particular circumstance. Now don't, don't mistake me here. This is not a, a, a grin and bear it counsel that the Lord gives us. No, we're not speaking about the absence of pain or the absence of difficulty. No, we still feel the pain in the case of hunger. Your, your stomach still rumbles, right? You still feel the, the physical pain of, of hunger. And it's true in all of our other circumstances. We suffer loss. We go without. We lack. There's things we desperately want. And there are real world pains associated with that wide variety of things. And I'm not saying we deny the pain. We ignore the pain. We pretend the pain isn't there. We're delivered from the pain. I'm not saying that. The Bible's not saying that. I'm speaking about our internal response to it. And this is an important point because there's actually two pains. There are two pains. And we can conflate them when we talk about the pain. We talk about the pain. We can conflate these two pains. First of all, there is the cross, the affliction, the suffering. 
the thing we, we lack, right? The external thing, whatever it is. Right? We don't escape that real pain. That's real. We're not, we're, not, we're, not, we're not delivered from that real pain. The second pain is our internal response. Do we magnify it? You know, do we acquiesce or do we resist? Are we content or do we resent what we've been presented with? Do we resort to self-pity or are we pursuing pleasing the Lord in these things? The sinful response inside produces its own pain. And so we can't conflate those two things. Yes, there is the pain itself. The thing that, that, that we're presented with. But that's not the same as justifying the pain that we've created through our sinful response to it. Do you see the difference between those two, those two pains? And so there's, there's a call in this passage, the sound heart that, uh, that is spoken of here, is speaking of a satisfied, yielding heart, a heart that is satisfied with the Lord, satisfied with the Lord's own will. And so it's not something where we flip the switch. Okay, we've come to this point, bloop, we flip the switch and now we move on. No, it's more like a battle every day. So that we, we're, 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 we're at war and, you know, it's our, our will is rising up and exerting itself and creating all sorts of dissatisfaction and bitterness and envy of others and unhappiness and so on and so forth. And we go to war in the strength of the Lord. And we bring to bear all that we're hearing about his word, promises, his, his, the, 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 the provision of himself to us. We were conscious, ah, I know what's going on here. I, I need to want not what I want, but what the Lord wants. And so I've got to bring my, my, my will and desires into alignment with actually wanting what it is that he is willing in his providence for me. With confidence that he's good and wise and loving and I'm stupid and foolish and blind and dumb and he knows and I don't. And therefore, I'm going to trust him and rejoice over the things that he uh, calls me to. And that's what's being exhibited in what Paul's saying himself in the passage we looked at. And so there is uh, a sound heart. Secondly, there is a satisfied heart. Thirdly, there is a set free heart. So the heart is also set free. A sound heart is the life of the flesh or body, but envy the rottenness of the bones. So this turbulent, agitated, envious heart rots you from the inside out. That's bondage. That's misery, which always comes along as the twin of sin. Here we see in a sound heart, a tranquil heart. A tranquil heart of contentment is absolutely liberating. It induces life even to the body. It liberates us to have all of those entanglements that ensnare us cut loose, to, to by the grace of God and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to be freed from the bondage of envy and discontent 
is to be liberated. It is life-giving. This is why in 1 Timothy 6, we hear the Apostle Paul telling his young protege in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying this is a windfall. You're, you're being given a treasure. You're, 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 you're not losing. You're actually gaining. Thing You thought you went into this whole thing thinking you've lost this and you, you don't have this and you need that and you lack that and whatever. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and is certain we can carry nothing out. There's something liberating. It sets free the heart. The focus is no longer on changing our circumstances. If I could only have that relationship or that job or those gifts or that person's health, whatever else it is, instead of focusing on how are we going to manipulate, change, you know, rework our circumstances, instead the focus is on changing our heart. Changing our heart. Changing our expectations. Changing, this is the other thing that stood out to me, changing our desires. What's needed for a sound heart is to actually change what we desire. So when you're envious, you're desiring stuff you don't have that other people do. It's changing our desires. We've already seen lead, the things that have led up to this. So you want to match wanting what the Lord wants, as we've said. How is that changing our desires? Well, it comes out in a very interesting way. Not in the things we've already highlighted. But a, a sound heart actually alters our response even when we do receive and get what we want. It alters our response even when we do receive what we think we need or want. Look again at that passage in Philippians 4. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. He says in verse 14, Notwithstanding ye have well done, that you did communicate with my affliction. So you see Paul's response when he's receiving their gift in the midst of his affliction. The question is, why is he responding this way? Look at verse 17. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. This proves what I'm telling you from the Bible. It's actually changing our desires. Paul says, I, I wasn't desiring a gift. I was free of it. I was content. But I was desiring something else. I was desiring fruit that may abound in your, to your account. And so it's this transformation, sanctifying influence of the Spirit, that transfer, transforms our desires. So the contentment that he, that he was given changed what he desired. And what he desperately wanted was the spiritual fruitfulness 
of Philippi. That's what he desperately wanted. More than his own needs. And when he got that desire, he responds in verse 18, I have all and abound. I am full. Isn't that striking to you? He's changed his desires. He now wants, he wants something for someone else. He wants fruitfulness for Philippi. He gets that desire that he wants. And in receiving it, he says, I have everything. I have all. I, I, I abound. I'm abounding. I'm full. I mean, that's the language of the Apostle Paul. And so you can see how, how this really does set you free. It's set free. The sound heart is a heart that is set free by the grace of, of the Lord. It enables the Christian to live at liberty out of the abundance that is to be found in Jesus Christ. The eighth commandment is being worked out in the soul of the Lord's own people. And so he can conclude in verse 19, but my God shall supply, not maybe, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is extravagant provision. This is opulent provision. The Lord's saying he, he will deliver everywhere, always, every time. He's going to supply what he deems your true need. And he's going to do it out of the abundance of his own riches. Out of the abundance of his own riches. And so this is sound heart. The sound heart is the life of the body. But envy the rottenness of the bones. So we're being taught to, to will what God wills. So that our turbulent, reckless, foolish will is actually being brought to align with the Lord's will from our hearts. Not on paper, but in person. So that we are most happy to have what God determines. What he determines is what makes us happy. Why? Because we know that he'll withhold no good thing from us. We know that if there were anything better than the circumstances we were in, that's what we'd be getting. This is the very best. Because the Lord always supplies and delivers the very best for his people. And so we find satisfaction in the supreme pleasure that excels all other pleasures. Psalm 36, verse 8. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. Thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Here's satisfaction. Here's a soul set free. Or you think of another well-known portion of the Psalms, Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Verse 11, thou wilt show me the path of life. Life, right? It's our text in Proverbs 14. In thy presence is fullness of joy 
at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Perhaps another way of getting at this point of the set free heart is that, Christian, you, you're not ever to lose sight of what you ultimately want. That's another angle. You lose sight of what you ultimately want. And you begin to focus on these other things you think you want. If you can keep your gaze riveted on what you ultimately want, on what alone ultimately matters, what matters most, most in time, most in eternity, most for your body and soul, most for the Lord and his glory. Don't lose sight of what you ultimately want above all other things. And remember all of the ways in which you gain closeness to the Lord. When you're in the vice or crucible, when you're in the crunch or in the trenches, you have the opportunity to run to the Lord or from the Lord. It is an opportunity to gain closeness to him. What are the options? You either can gain closeness to the Lord, which we've just said is abundant satisfaction and pleasures forevermore and rivers of pleasure and so on and so forth. Or in exchange, you can feed your idol. And you can bow down at your pathetic shrine and worship what is unworthy of even a glance. God forbid that we feed our idols, starve them, kill them, decapitate them, burn them, grind them, throw their ashes in the river and worship the living God, serve him, love him, be content with him, find satisfaction in him, run to him, cling to him. This is the picture that the Lord gives us, a sound heart. And there is none ever, nor ever will be, who embodies this application of the Eighth Commandment than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He had the worst lot ever dealt to any man. Bar none. He was quintessentially the man of sorrows. His whole life was wrung out in tears and sorrow. And yet he was sound in heart, satisfied, a tranquil contentedness, set free from all of the other entanglements. He was satisfied with what the Lord had allotted to him. And instead of looking to get, he was one who came desiring to abundantly give. And giving himself, giving his life as a sacrifice in the stead of sinners, and giving his spirit, and giving his gospel, and giving his grace, and new life, and regeneration, conversion, faith, repentance, and all of the abundant fruit that follows. He gave us heaven, the reward to come, and everything else, 
This is the Savior who is set forth in all of his beauty and in all of his glory. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, the one who is life and the giver of life, the one who is the altogether generous, opulent God who gives to us above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine. We worship and adore thy holy name. Confess our sin, O Lord, our inexcusable wickedness. How could we, who have been given Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, given a Bible, given the church and the kingdom, ordinances of worship and all else, O Lord, there is no place for us to have anything less than a sound heart, which is life to the body. Grant that the Holy Spirit would grant, would give to us this fruit, that it would increase and abound and grow and flourish, and that it would be to the praise and glory of your great name. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.